I do hope you have found some meaning in this short sermon series that we've been exploring on mysticism this past uh, a few weeks. I know I have thoroughly enjoyed immersing myself in the words and, and ideas of those that we label mystics, like from the past that we've journeyed into, like Hildegard of Bingen, you heard her words, and Meister Eckert, and of course, uh, uh, Jesus, the mystic, just to name a few, and, and uh, into more modern mystics, like Richard Rohr, or Cynthia Bougeot, who you're going to hear a little bit more of today, and of course, Howard Thurman, and the great Carl Rahner. On the past few weeks, we have accomplished a, a couple of things. Most importantly, that we walked our way through the current religious paradigm that we live our, our spiritual lives within, a paradigm that is pretty much antithetical to the life and way of Jesus, and one which has been handed down uh, pretty much from Augustine in the fourth century to us today. And it's one of, if you've heard it, original sin and fall and redemption and atonement and the need for a sacrificial lamb of God to put us back in right relationship with our parental figure in the sky who created us and who judges us for actions right and wrong, especially in terms of our beliefs. And love from God is a choice in this paradigm, something to be earned. And, and God is, we're taught, I've been, I was taught this, many of you were, especially if you grew up Lutheran. <laughs> God is something to be fe- someone to be feared and to be placated. And so we explored how this tradition has come down to us today, passed on for most of us from gener- generation to generation through our family religious traditions and how so many of us still to this day, even when we try to escape it, have the, the old tape of orthodoxy quietly playing in our minds that, well, we're sinners in need of saving grace that Jesus Christ has merited for us if we just believe right, live the dogma and the orthodoxy, say the creeds in the right way, then, only then, will we be rewarded when it's all over. Very Pavlovian, isn't it? Last week, then, we talked about this way of expressing our, how this way of expressing our, our spiritual lives is just not viable anymore. It's not. I shared with you the evidence, the statistics that about the 6,000 to 10,000 churches that are closing each and every year, according to so many statistics. I took you into a journey of, of churches that are being repurposed, turned into homes and galleries and laser tag and playground facilities, and so much more. I shared with you the story of Heaven's Door Distillery. Remember that? Owned by Bob Dylan that will open this year. They used to be Elm Street Methodist Church for over 100 years before it closed its doors due to a dwindling membership, like so many others. And I told you about Church Brew Works, (laughs) which used to be St. John the Baptist, Baptist Catholic Church in Pittsburgh, And how in the very place up on the altar where bread and wine was transformed for all those years into the the body and blood of of Christ, grains and hops are now being transformed into IPAs and brown ales. As the church was repurposed into a brew pub. (laughs) Not making that up. My point being that the evidence is right there. If we'll only accept it, churches are closing Churches are closing in massive numbers across the spectrum. Christianity is going extinct right under our noses. The old paradigm, 
and the God in the sky, the fantasy God in the sky, um, is ceasing to fire the modern mind with awe and wonder. And we're a generation, take this lightly, we're a generation away from saying goodbye to the whole enterprise. It's kind of sad, isn't it? And of course, the glue that has held all of this together for us in this sermon series on mysticism is a Jesuit theologian, Karl Rahner's famous prediction, a line he wrote in 1981 after beginning to survey like we are doing the reality of the death of the very thing he loved, the church he saw it coming. And so he penned that famous line, the Christian of the future will be a mystic or he or she will not exist at all. Christian of the future will be a mystic or he or she will not exist at all. Remember what that Rahner scholar Harvey Egan said in summing up what Rahner meant by that. He said, Rahner holds the position that everyone, even the agnostic and the atheist, who lives moderately, selflessly, honestly, courageously, and in service to others, lives what he calls the mysticism of everyday life, that the most profound form of mysticism of everyday life is unreserved love for another. Mm. Mysticism, again, I'm trying to hammer home here in this series, is not a personal escape-the-world kind of mentality. It's not some new-agey, flaky-flighty kind of thing. So many think it is. It is rather a profound experience of this thing that we name God and a profound and moving experience of, the, of, of connection to the other. In mysticism, these two things are intimately connected and cannot be separated. Thus, at the heart of the mystic way, the mystic path is the interconnection of all things. And surely then, at the heart of the mystic way, we find the fullness of what we call the Jesus way and this thing that he kept calling the kingdom of God. Remember what Thomas wrote, our first scripture text when we started this this series? Thomas wrote that Jesus said, if those who lead you say to you, see the kingdom is up in the sky, well then the birds of the sky will precede you. If they say to you, it's in the sea, then the fish will precede you. Rather, the kingdom is inside of you and it is outside of you. When you come to know yourselves, then you will become known and you will realize that it is you who are the children of the living God. The kingdom of God is inside of you and it's outside of you. When we realize that, Jesus tells us the fullness of the God experience is opened up to us and life can never, ever be the same. Welcome to the mystic path. Now, one question has been lurking in my mind as I've been working on this this short sermon series that seemed pertinent to explore with you. That question is, what do we mean when we say God? (laughs) Just a little tiny question. (laughs) And maybe more importantly, can we really explore the nature of the mystic way of life using this name, this word that is so loaded with the old paradigm grime from the past. I wonder how many of you, when you, you hear God, that name, that word, God invoked, imagine what we've been taught, the image of an old man in the sky, right? White and bearded, of course, thanks to so much of Western European art. God's like an Italian grandfather in the sky. 
I was an art history major, I know these things. <laughs> We've been taught to think about God as Father. And our greatest collective prayer begins, our Father, who art in heaven. And as far as I know, my Father is still here. He lives in Minnesota. <laughs> I was just arguing politics with him last night, as a matter of fact. <laughs> so what do you mean my Father's in heaven? No, he's not. <laughs> I have a feeling this comes up for many of you uh, as, as well. And I have a feeling that when I say with 100% confidence that the character of God told within the pages and stories of the Bible is not remotely the reality and totality of this thing that we name God. I don't think I'm alone on that either here in this place. I, I don't think I'm the only heretic here. <laughs> Any other heretics here? <laughs> uh, I mean, the Bible, both the Hebrew Scriptures and the Newer Testament, after all, or the Koran, or take any other books and texts considered sacred, are, are merely aspirations to get to the heart of the reality of the God experiences as meditated through particular cultural or socially located lenses with particular cultural taboos and rules, and laws, and beliefs, and customs, all woven into those stories. And, and they all fall woefully short of getting to the heart of the God experience, and if we're honest, they actually often do, do more damage than anything else. I mean, take how women are treated, for example. Hmm. Or how for so long it has been seen as wrong and sinful to be LGBTQ. God never said, never said, women are to be subjected and silent and to obey their husbands. God never said that. And God never said it was wrong to be LGBTQ. People, in particular, ancient cultures said that. And somehow now we've been led to believe that those are some kind of universal God mandate. But that's not God. It's just not God. It's people. Likewise, the stories that have come down to us, such as God drowning all of humanity and creation, except a family in two pairs or seven pairs of each animal species, depending on which story you believe. They're both in there. Go read it. Because he was angry. Or God stopping the sun at the battle of, of Jericho. And joining in the violence and throwing down stones, God's self, from heaven to slaughter the enemy like a bloodthirsty tyrant. That, again, we know today that these are not the things of this presence that we name God. We know this. These are stories. <laughs> Strange stories, albeit. But stories. Stories that particular cultures would have naturally told about a God that was on their side. Or or to try to explain the inexplicable in the, in the difficult times of life. Their mythology, which even in their strangeness contain truths about the world, but they're not literal accounts of God's actions in the world. We need to get over that. Remember the well-known line that I love to throw at you all the time from John Dominic Crossan, one of the greatest of all historical Jesus and religion scholars? He says, 
It's not that those ancient people told literal stories. We are not smart enough to take them symbolically. Rather, they told symbolic stories that we are now dumb enough to take literally. <laughs> we know these things do not represent the God experience today, and to keep insisting that they do, and to keep living that old God paradigm in this day and age is just going to get you more churches turned into distilleries and brew pubs. It's happening right under our noses. Mysticism, though. Mm. Mysticism. The kind that Jesus lived in his own life and that he, that he walked on his path calls us to a different conception of that which we name God. That title, it's, it's what he meant when he so often spoke of the kingdom of God using language that would have been readily and culturally available to him, but which he knew transcended the meaning of those words themselves. And modern mystic Cynthia Bourgeau, again, whom I introduced you to last week, I love her. She talks of a term that impacted her understanding of Jesus and his relationship to this mystery of God. It was first put forth by, uh, maybe you've heard of him, a a well-known priest and scholar, Ramon Panikar. Anybody heard of him? Great thinker. And he coined this term, cosmotheandric. Ooh, (laughs) big fancy term. Cosmotheandric. It's a combination of the words cosmos for the world, theos for God, and andros for human. (laughs) We're going to use human, Kathy. (laughs) Take it from our Greek audience here. Yes, she's right, but we're going to use human. (laughs) She wrote this, far from either a static imminence or a static transcendence, Jesus' experience of God was cosmotheandric, meaning the infinite and the finite continuously interbiting one another, dynamically changing places through a process of continual self-giving or, or kenosis. Mm. She referenced the famous line where Jesus says, I and Abba, or the Father are one, and explains that on one end of the pole, at the Abba, Father pole, Jesus is most fully identified with his finite selfhood, reaching out to God with a very intense experience of, of divine filiation. At the opposite pole, I and the Father are one. There is simply a unity of being. No place where God stops and I begin. Just a unity. Love that. I love her understanding of that which we name God. And though we speak of God in supernatural theistic terms, meaning the God in the sky of the the biblical stories, underneath it all, as Jesus understood, is another reality where this mystery we ascribe the name God to is present as a creative and sustaining presence that I always like to say, you hear it all the time, is closer than the beat of your own heart. Touch your heart. Closer than the beat of your own heart. Closer than each breath we take, intertwined with us in ways that we just cannot comprehend and that we can only try to describe in our limited human terms and language. Cynthia said after discovering this cosmotheandric way of thinking of Panikars that, quote, his words knocked my socks off, for it felt so in tune with the heartbeat of the 21st century, the dynamic, evolving, interabiding world we are coming to find affirmed far more in science these days than in theology, 
which is still so stuck in defending an ancient and long since superfluous abyss between form and formless. That is mysticism summed up really, really well. That is the unified relationship between us as human beings, the life force of this natural world all around us, and the totality of the, of the God experience. They are all intertwined in this sort of mutual cosmic web of existence. And we can't escape God if we wanted to. You can't. It's not possible. The creative presence is always and already a part of us and everyone else from the moment we're a tiny cell to the moment we die and meld ever deeper into that mystery. It's a beautiful thing. That's mysticism. Think of the world. If we lived this kind of cosmotheandric perspective like, like Jesus did, think how we'd re- we would regard our planet and our natural world with so much more reverence as a, a part of our religious tradition. Think how we would no longer see disunity and division among our global sisters and brothers. Think of how this would lead to a flourishing of justice and love and peace in our world if we can only shed the dualities that our old paradigm religion instills in us, worthy and unworthy, saved and damned, believer and non-believer, saint and sinner, or in our dualistic secular lives, Democrat and Republican, right? Immigrant or citizen, liberal or conservative, gay or so-called straight. We can go on with these dualisms all day long, but just think of those the world that that kind of unified mystical vision would give us. It's a beautiful vision of togetherness, love, and harmony. It is the kingdom of God, as Jesus told us. We're just missing it. It's right there. Speaking of dualism and God, which is really the heart of the problem that keeps the mystical mind from truly flourishing in our tradition, I want to share what Joseph Campbell. I've heard of Joseph Campbell. famed expert of mythology and a true mystic. This guy's a full-blown mystic in the fullest sense. He said said of this, because maybe maybe he can help us have a kind of a clearer conception of what we mean when we we say God, because let's be honest, it's a difficult word to replace, right? Within the confines of our limited language, that is just not able to describe the mystical very well. He was having a conversation with Bill Moyers in the Power of Myth series that many of you probably have either read or seen. And they were talking about the Garden of Eden, which of course Joseph Campbell does not believe, if you know him, was a literal place. He knew that it exists only in the realm of mythology. And Moyers asks, is the story of the Garden of Eden trying to tell us that prior to what happened in this garden to destroy us, there was a unity of life? And Campbell answers, it's a matter of consciousness. It doesn't have to do with anything that happened. There's a plane of consciousness where you can identify yourself with that which transcends pairs of opposites. Moyer says, which is? Mm, unnameable. Unnameable, Campbell quickly replies. It is transcendent of all names. Moyers then asks, God? And here's the heart of it for Campbell, which really sums the whole thing up for me. Campbell replies, God is an ambiguous word in our language because it appears to refer to something that is known, but the transcendent is unknowable and unknown. God is transcendent, finally, of anything like the name God. 
God is beyond names and forms. Meister Eckert said, the ultimate and highest leave-taking is leaving God for God, leaving your notion of God for an experience of that which transcends all notions. The mystery of life is beyond human conception. Everything we know is within the terminology of the concepts of being and not being, many and single, true and untrue. But God, the ultimate, is beyond pairs of opposites. Then he ends with, that's all there is to it. (laughs) That answers that, right? It's great. It's a whole different way of seeing life. I'll continue to say, God, you're going to hear it from me. Knowing full well that when I do, I'm, I'm speaking of a presence that transcends all names and all personifications, all sexes, all genders. In the words of the, the great Marcus Borg, God, who does, who admits, I use God all the time and I'll keep on using it. That's what he said. Because he knows what he means. The problem is we've got to tell others what we mean. He says, God is the name we use for the non-material, stupendous, stupendous, wondrous more. That includes the universe, even as God transcends the universe. This is God as the encompassing spirit, the one in whom we live and move and have our being, the one who is all around us and within us. God is the one in whom the universe is, even as God is more than the universe. The mystery who is beyond all names, even as, even as uh, we name the sacred mystery in our own various ways. End quote. The heart of the mystical way, or everyday mysticism, is in recognizing exactly that and in letting that guide the path of your own life so it is aligned with that all-encompassing and all-connecting reality. If we can live as though we are each an incarnation of God, which is the heart of the mystical way, then everything will change in seismic ways, my friends. I want to close this sermon series with the words of Abujo again. Um, she really is just, she's so funny. Total mystical humor, funny person. Just, I love her. She said this uh, about the words for the future. She is what we're looking to. And I think this might resonate with, with many of you. They're scared of letting go. She said, I know that the direction of and rate of acceleration nowadays leaves a lot of us boomers, and she really used that, <laughs> boomers, who are still invested in the orderly transmission of institutional Christianity quaking in our boots. Let me read that again. I know that the direction of and rate of acceleration nowadays leaves a lot of us boomers who are still invested in the orderly transmission of institutional Christianity quaking in our boots. But you see the light at the end of the tunnel And all of this is that Jesus was there already 2,000 years ago. And as we open our mystical eye of the heart and see, what we see is a Christianity which has essentially been waiting in the wings for two millennia for the time to arrive when it can finally become consistent in its own cosmotheandric calling. As you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, may they also be in us, I in them, and you and me, that they may be completely one. That time is now, she says, and we get to be the midwives. What could be more exciting? My friends, if you remember anything from this sermon series, if you remember anything from this sermon series, (laughs) speaking of myself there as well, (laughs) 
remember these two things. You are a mystic. Every single one of you. Remember that. And second, remember that you are an incarnation of God in the world. You're not taught to think of yourself that way, but you are. Every single one of you is, incar- is an incarnation of God in the world. You don't need to believe that at all. You just need to live it and experience it and stand changed and awed by it and all that you do and are. The rest will all fall into place. So let's preach that message to the world because that's a message that the world desperately needs. Happy mysticism, my friends. (laughs) Amen. Amen.